HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Fairway Market, like no other market, a New York City institution that sells the best local, national, and international artisan foods for prices that can't be beat. For more information, visit fairwaymarket.com. I'm Erica Wides, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hi, and welcome to A Taste of the Past. I'm your host, Linda Palaccio, on this half-hour journey through culinary history. And there is a very important celebration going on in culinary history this year. It is the 100th anniversary of Pyrex. And I challenge you to look in your kitchen cabinet. I'm sure there's a Pyrex dish in there somewhere, maybe a glass pie plate that you pull out only for Thanksgiving, or unless you bake a lot, which I I applaud you for that, a lidded casserole. What about that ubiquitous glass measuring cup with those red incremental markings? Yeah, come on. The name is so familiar, you don't even recognize it. It's Pyrex. And this year marks the 100th anniversary of the brand. And the fact that Pyrex can be found in almost every American home is really no accident. It is by intelligent design and strategic marketing. And the cookware has had an indelible effect on how and what we cook, not to mention how we store leftovers. America's favorite dish celebrating a century of Pyrex is a current exhibit at the Corning Museum of Glass commemorating the history of Pyrex brand housewares developed by the Corning Glass Works in 1915. It was born out of scientific discoveries in glass and the emerging science of home economics. Pyrex was really shaped not only by the designers and the engineers at Corning but also by women consumers around the country. And joining me today is Reagan Brumagen. And Reagan is a member of the Reikow Research Library at the Corning Museum of Glass in Corning, New York. And Reikow, am I pronouncing that right, Reagan? 
Yes, Rakow. Okay, Rakow is the world's foremost library on the art and history of glass and glassmaking. And Reagan is one of the curators of this fabulous exhibit of the Pyrex Century. And Reagan, welcome so much to the show. Thanks for having me, Linda. Well, the now the exhibit I um, from I haven't been there yet, but I, I do intend to make it. I think it's going through when January or through March seventeenth, actually. Oh, March seventeenth. Okay, um, but it will have vintage Pyrex advertisements and other ephemera and, and glassware um, that is all part of the library collection. Uh, but more importantly, is that people. I think people really have no idea about the beginnings of Pyrex. How did it all start? Well, there are several different legends of how it started, and I think most of them boil down to the story of Jesse and Bessie Littleton, who were a couple came to Corning um, in the early 20th century, and Jesse worked at Corning Glassworks as a physicist. And at the time, Corning had just come out with a very successful borosilicate glass product called Nonex, and they were using it for battery jars and railroad signal lanterns. And it was very successful, but they had sort of saturated their market. They were looking for a new way to use this glass. So Jesse was one of the scientists who was, excuse me, who was um, working on products that um, they could use the glass in, and the story goes that his wife suggested uh, using it as a, a ovenware uh, to make ovenware with. So she asked him to bring home some battery jars. He had them sawed off so that they looked like cake dishes, and uh, she baked a sponge cake, and everyone was very happy with the way it tasted. Uh, it baked very quickly. The glass was easy to clean, and you could sort of look in the oven and check on its progress since it was clear glass. So taking all of these attributes into consideration, they decided to start investigating this for a new product line. Huh. Well, and the um, the clear glass items were were really some of the first. We don't even think of the clear glass that much anymore, so much as we do a lot of that, um, the colorful designs. But the clear glass, it was, was that originally the flameware? Was that the first line? No. Actually, the flameware didn't come about until the 1930s, and that was oh. the top of the stove cooking. Mm-hmm. Consumers were asking for a new product that they could use not only in the oven, but also on top of the stove. So flameware was introduced then. Um, ovenware was the first, and, and interestingly, I think, it is the product the line that's still being produced in Pyrex. It's the clear glass. The nine by thirteen baking pan that yep. I think is very <laughs> ubiquitous, right? Right, everyone, everyone has, everyone one, has um, one the measuring of those. cup, right. and it's the patterned opalware that people associate with Pyrex that's no longer being made. Mm, okay, and it's they're collecting collectors' items. Oh, it's, yeah, yeah, very hot item. All right. <laughs> um, well, you um, you didn't mention, but they're in the in the article. Well, actually, yes, you wrote the article about the about the. Um, on the museum site about the um, exhibit and the celebration and the fact that um, it really was started along with the um, the science of home economics. We And I think that I did a show on that quite a ways back on the beginnings of home economics that people didn't even realize we didn't teach home economics to young people or young women at that time only. But they um, they really involved home economists or in, in the whole development, correct? 
Yes, and you know that's a, a part of the story I had absolutely no idea existed. Uh, scholars knew about it. Uh, you know, we found books that have been written about the, the rise of the profession, but in relating it to our collection of Pyrex ephemera and the museum's collection of glass, it wasn't really something that we had uh, thought about. So it was very um, innovative, I think, of Corny at the time to reach out to these superstars of home economist professions who were writing articles in Ladies' Home Journal and Good Housekeeping and uh, advising women on how to clean and cook and prepare meals for their family in a very scientific and economical way. So they asked them to test the the products in their kitchen and write endorsements. And so early ads, you can see several uh, names of, of famous home economists at the time who were endorsing Pyrex. Right. And in and a couple of names to mention in particular um, are Sarah Tyson Rohrer, an editor at Ladies Home Journal, and Mildred Madex, one of the um, members of the Good Housekeeping Institute. Um, those names popped out at me because I had been doing some other research on, on good housekeeping. Um, sadly, Ladies Home Journal we don't find, but, um, but anymore. This was really, um, I think not only an important breakthrough for developing the cookware, obviously, but as I mentioned at the top of the show, an interest, I mean, it, it all aided in the marketing to to housewives um, who they realized were using and buying most of the, the cookware um, at that time. But it was not always so affordable, correct? Oh, right. In fact, um, it was a luxury item when it first came out. Borosilicate glass is expensive to make, more expensive than the common glass you find in bottles. And in the beginning, it was uh, not a mechanized process, so it took a lot of manpower to to make and obviously much more expensive because borosilicate glass melts at a much higher temperature, so you have more heating costs. And so they had to sell it at fairly high prices, and it was marketed more as a gift item um, when um, Dr. Lucy Maltby, who was the first home economist that Corning hired, um, came on board in 1929, one of her um, goals was to make this a glass, she called it a glass for the masses, not for the classes. So she wanted to make this more of a uh, something that working families could afford to use and buy. Right. Well, when you said that it was an an expensive process, not only the heating, but I was amazed to find out um, that initially each piece was made by actually blowing glass, blowing a glass bubble, until they transferred over to pressed molds. Is that? Do I have that right? Um, many of them were made. Um, it depends on the, the, the type. Often they were blowing into a mold, but uh, some of the items, like teapots, were made in. You know, just by uh, regular glass blowing, and at very expensive to finish and and to create. And those were pretty popular in the 1920s. Hmm. Well, it's funny. It's interesting because a lot of the um, the early advertisements um, talk very much about um, gifts for the bride and groom. You know, when they 
go off on their own and get married. And as you said, they were they were made as gift items. And indeed, I don't you know what what young bride did not have a, a set of of some Pyrex or you know Corningware casserole dish or something you know in the in the gift pile. It was indeed a standard gift, and probably still is to a large part. I mean, people you know people have been responding to me and, and saying that they've. They still use and have their grandmother's original mixing bowls, and, and yes, and some people use uh, them for the same recipes every year. They may, like you said, you know, they may bring out the pie plate at Thanksgiving. Well, my mother always brought out the nine by thirteen to make her pea salad for Thanksgiving. You know, there's <laughs> a certain dishes that are traditionally made in families using Pyrex, and I've heard that story from many of our visitors who've come to look at the exhibition. That's right. I've scalloped potatoes that were always in that 9 by 13 glass <laughs> dish on the table. And as, well, and it was also kind of a, a change in, in cookware because it was it was something that was table presentable. You could cook in it and then put it right on the table. That and was that was big. very new. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then, of course, they you know, brought out all these fancy designs. We talked about the collectible designs that they no longer make. Um, but you mentioned Dr. Maltby. So here we fast forward to um, to when, when did she come around? You mentioned like the 30s? 1929. 1929, right. She really started and worked. I mean, she did cooking demos. She worked in a test kitchen, which, by the way, was really one of the first test kitchens, as we know now, that now all magazines and, and, and cooking sites all have test kitchens. But Corning had one of the very first test kitchens. Right, and it was it was heavily staffed, yeah, it, and with professional home economists. So, a number of her staff. I think she had thirty five at one point working wow. for her, and a number of them had degrees in in home economics. And she herself eventually obtained a, a PhD in home ec. So, she took it very uh, seriously in terms of scientifically approaching what she wanted to do and accomplish. And I think she came to Corning Glassworks with an idea that she could help them reevaluate the types of dishes that they were offering and really look at what the consumer needed and wanted and redesign those dishes based on their needs and based on the modern kitchen. So she did a lot of testing with that in mind. Hmm. And um, this is her name again for our listeners is Lucy Maltby. And she also designed um, and developed some with her team, some very specific recipes for that cookware. Correct? She did. That was one of her, um, she thought it it was a great way to help sell products. First of all, she wanted to test common recipes and because cooking times were so different in glass as opposed to metal or ceramics. And she felt like one of the things that was a turnoff for women consumers was that they might make one of their favorite dishes and it would scorch in in Pyrex because they were cooking it at the same you know, temperature time as or the same cooking time as they might in their metal pans. So uh, she also wanted to um, make sure that the Pyrex dishes the booklets that came out talked to women about how to clean the dishes the best way and, you know, what kinds of savings you might get from using Pyrex. And one of the first things she did was take 
their current booklet with recipes home to her mother, and they cooked them for a week Hmm. and decided that these recipes didn't work at all for the common woman. They were expensive. They were, you had many dishes to clean afterwards, and she wanted to change that. Well, I think one of the biggest um, uh, effects on, on, on our food and, and daily life and cooking was, that, was the storage of leftovers. Yeah, that's true. Um, now, so many of those containers, there were actually the, the refrigerator containers that had the glass lids, the flat glass lids. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we should make a concerted effort to bring those back in our I in, love in, those. in our <laughs> kitchens and get rid of the plastic, right? The That's plastic, right. The, the plastic that seems to regenerate all on its own. I don't know. I open my, you know, my <laughs> drawer of plastic leftover containers, and they keep it just keeps spilling out. And if you have these wonderful glass dishes, there they are. You know. That's right. Uh, yeah. Well, we're going to talk a lot more about recipes and some of the styles of Pyrux and then the flameware as well when we come back after a short break. So stay tuned. Oh, won't you save all your pumpkin pie just for me, girl? Please don't give none away. Let it get sweeter by the day. Oh, won't you save it, baby? Won't you save it? Oh, won't you save it all for me? I'm Steve Jenkins from Fairway Markets. I've devoted my idiot career to the old ways, the old recipes, the old tools, the old geography of where serious foods come from for centuries. And I've strived to make these wonderful things available to New Yorkers for 37 years. So it's a fait accompli for us to support Heritage Radio Network. And I hope you will, too. And I hope you'll keep tuning in. For more information, please visit fairwaymarket.com. Hi, we're back, and I'm I'm talking with Reagan Brummagen uh, from the Corning Glass Museum, all about a hundred year celebration of Pyrex. And um, Reagan, tell me, you know the the those um, recognizable colored mixing bowls. When did those first come about? Uh, those started in the well, actually, beginning after World War II. Corning was looking into what they called opalware, which is the opaque glass uh, that looks sort of like mm. pottery. Mm-hmm. And they started with primary color mixing bowls, and then they moved into silk screening on those bowls to make the lovely patterns that they produced them for the next 30 or 40 years. And so those came out with, they came out with new ones every year, sometimes one or two different new ones every year. Hmm. And even some of the clear glass ones, they etched patterns in the clear glass as well. That's right. It was beautiful. Um, you know, the the um, flameware, we, I mentioned that earlier on, and, and you said that was later. Do we, is it still produced, the flameware? No, that ended in the 1970s, yeah. and uh, the opalware ended production in the 1980s. In the meantime, they had started making products like Corel and Corningware, and those were more durable, probably um, 
lighter weight, especially the Corel wear, and could also be made in different patterns. So I think they kind of edged, edged out things like um, the Pyrex and the flame wear. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because just the other day I had seen a television commercial for a, a dishwashing detergent, and I swear every dish they showed in the commercial had to have been a Pyrex dish sometime <laughs> or another. But it was about cooking, and, and even if it scorches or burns on, you can serve it in the dish and then put it in the refrigerator and save it, and the stuff gets really hard and crusty, and use this detergent, and you can clean it off. But it's true. That well, the- I, I use mine. I mean, I don't you know have it just for display. I use the, the mixing bowls all the time, and yeah. I don't have flameware, but you can see that a lot in vintage, vintage stores, and hmm. I know people still use it quite a bit. Yeah, it's, that's terrific. Um, what Back to um, Dr. Maltby and mm-hmm. the development of the recipes. What Was there anything out of some of the early booklets, any recipes in particular that were that sort of have um, uh, become staples? I think that she tried to, to focus on popular ones. And it's interesting when you talk about flameware that's cooking on top of the stove. And one of the main things that customers were complaining about with the flameware was that they couldn't make candy very well because it's such a a science, right? Mm. I'm not a candy maker, but I know you have to be very exact about a thermometer. Yeah. So um, her staff rigorously tested things like peanut brittle and caramel and wrote up memos that you can find in the Corning Incorporated Archives. And I I copied a couple of them uh, because they're just so interesting. They're they're very, very specific. And, in fact, um, they talk about, you know, temperature exact and, you know, that you need to do for the peanut brittle. And they tested groups, you know, A through Z. (laughs) And spent a lot of time developing these recipes, which they then sent out to customers and sometimes they would be attached to ads and sometimes they would be in the the care booklets that came with the products and then Dr. Maltby came out with her own book of recipes called Pyrex Prize Recipes that sold for two dollars and fifty cents in 1953. Hmm. Wow. (laughs) I think the bowls were two dollars and fifty cents as well. (laughs) Seemed to be a nice round (laughs) number. That's right. Yeah. Um, Well indeed the recipes uh, that that so many um, products come with little suggested recipes, but I'm sure a lot of consumers must have developed a lot of their own recipes, especially I'm thinking about a lot of, oh, the loaf pans. The loaf pans were great. So that was, you know, either for breads or meatloaf or or whatever a housewife might, or any cook, not a housewife, that's, we don't want to be sexist on that, but any any home cook would use. Um, that were did they have a lot of interaction with consumers? Yes, their her staff had the primary interaction um, while that department that division was in place. They answered all kinds of questions. Um, you know, thousands of letters came in, and they would respond to them all. And they also she had a staff of field agents who traveled around the country. Um, they spoke on radio shows and TV shows at department stores, and they would demonstrate cooking and cleaning uh, the, the Pyrex dishes. They also trained all of the salesmen, and they were all salesmen at the time, uh, to boil water and make simple foods and be able to talk intelligently about the dishes when they spoke to their customers. So 
they had quite a far-reaching task there. But, you know, some of the things that you see them commonly making are things like popovers and the custard cup dishes. And uh, I don't know if you've seen the, the flavor saver apple, uh, the, the pie dishes, the pie plates that came out, and they often had an apple pie recipe on them. Oh, interesting. I, didn't, I, haven't, I, I guess I just didn't notice it. But the old ads always show an apple pie in the dish. So maybe I was just missing the recipe that <laughs> came with it. Right, and, and then in the 1940s with uh, World War II, they they would. I remember one specific ad that talked about dumplings. You know, dumplings in your Victory Garden. Uh, you know, a recipe that was uh, use the use the glass dish to to conserve fuel and save on metal and make this wonderful recipe. So well, they and, would the, and the those kinds of ads. Right, and during that um, war period. Um, it was really, the Pyrex was really touted as, you know, was don't throw anything away, save your leftover, cook it in this dish and save it exactly. leftovers to serve the next day. Right. And there was some funny little ditty I saw on, uh, on one of the museum's websites, something, one page about you can, you can chill me, boil me, uh, bake me, whatever. I don't care. I'm Pyrex or something. It had a cute rhyme, but I forget what it was. <laughs> yeah, they had. They used some of these jingles to, yeah, to um, sell their products. And sometimes, I think the one I remember was, okay, here it is. Uh, it was a salesman who came up with this. Said a woman of great penetration, I cannot see why in creation you should bake in the dark as they did in the ark when Pyrex permits observation. So, <laughs> well, very different style of advertising than you see today, right? Right, absolutely. Okay, so let's talk about that, that the icon of Pyrex today, even though it came later, and that's the measuring cup. Mm. When did the measuring cup first come about? The mid-1920s, I think it was 1925, the first one came out. The first one was double-spouted, so you could pour either direction. And Great I guess idea. It, it must not have been very popular because it was only in that form for a year. Hmm. And then the next one took a more traditional shape. And over the next years, you saw, I think, maybe seven or eight different uh, um, types of measuring cups that came out when they started putting the the uh, um, the gradations in red, for instance, mm-hmm. and there was one where they had metric in addition to uh, regular measurements, and on the inside, I believe, you know, just different types of formulations, and then coming up to the the stackable one, which I think is very familiar to most people. Hmm. Um, well, you know, I'd almost forgotten about the small custard cups or you know ingredient cups that we're you know. For um, that, you know, a lot of us use as mise en place. You get everything, all everything together. I forgot that that was Pyrex. Um, but back to the measuring cup. There was there not a traveling a, la- a large traveling measuring <laughs> cup in, to sort of bring attention to the celebration. Yes, uh, World Kitchen, uh, who owns the consumer products division that was established by Corning Glassworks. They sold that division in the late 1990s, and World Kitchen now produces Pyrex. And they had a a very, I think it was maybe four and a half feet, five feet tall measuring cups that they were traveling around the country with and making different stops. And they did stop uh, for the opening here at the museum. And uh, it's not actually made of glass. Oh, so that would be <laughs> that would be very heavy, horrifically <laughs> expensive and very heavy to yeah exactly to tote around. Right. So, 
that was kind of disappointing to some people, but um, <laughs> it does look exactly like the measuring cup. And they picked that as their symbol because I think it is the the product that most of us associate with Pyrex. Yes. I mean, you, you know, you don't really identify the other baking dishes with the name, but of course that measuring cup has it loud and clear, right? On <laughs> written right in red on the top. And, right. and we know that. Um, now, I don't know if, if, you know the answer to this or not, but you know, certainly there was tempered glass, and and I don't know if it was this um, type of glass before we used in um, in beakers and you know in science labs. Was so? Did this all? Is this what um, Jesse and and um, and Bessie Littleton were working with when they when they came about making Actually, the Yeah, Corning Glass, Corning Incorporated now still makes. Pyrex labware, mm. and so they and they still actually own the brand name Pyrex. So they just license it to various companies, including World Kitchen. There's also a European company, I believe, that licensed Pyrex, and they had Pyrex uh, over the years in countries from England to Australia, um, Japan, maybe. I can't remember all the different places, but so it's it's the brand that they have licensed out and. The labware, though, they still produce, and it was a very early product of theirs in the early um, 19-teens. They started making it. And I think during World War I, uh, Germany had been producing a lot of the labware that was purchased by universities and hospitals. And because of the war, the supply was cut off, so um, Corning started selling a lot more labware locally here in the country and became one of the major producers of it and mm-hmm. still are. Yeah. Well, what a great innovation and, and idea to turn this you know, stuff that was only found in labs into something that was became an item in every American home. And indeed, they succeeded in making it affordable and available to, to everyone. Still is. I was in a large supermarket chain oh, a couple of months ago, knowing I was going to be doing this show, and all of a sudden the one shelf caught my eye. I said, "I've never really paid attention to that before," and it was it was a three level shelf all devoted to Pyrex bakeware, and there it is, still available to the home cook at a very reasonable price, and you know, found in your local supermarket. So it's really it's really had quite quite a great life over the 100 years. And I must say the museum, the Corning Gla- Museum of Glass is, is quite an exciting, has quite an exciting collection. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the museum itself and the collection. Well, we've just opened a new wing devoted to contemporary art, and it's incredible. The, the lighting there, the, the space is it's wonderful for um, viewing this kind of art, which sometimes is very difficult to display. Um, we also have our traditional galleries with uh, history of glass beginning in ancient times up to the present and uh, an innovation center where you can learn more about science and industry. And the collection that's on display in the library right now, uh, the Pyrex collection, was uh, huge, over 2,000 pieces that we purchased from a single Pyrex collector. Wow. And so that's forming the, the bulk of what we have on display, although we have some early um, donations, too, from people who worked at Corning uh, as well. So, Wow, that was one single collector. Hmm. Yes. Yeah. I mean, we've, we've met a lot of collectors during this, this exhibition, and, and they have huge, huge collections. 
Well, that's wonderful that that's, the collection has finally come <laughs> come of age, and they have a place to to display it at this um, this great exhibit. Um, tell me, it. I almost didn't want to bring it up, but you know, you sort of have to talk about the 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 fun and the foibles. And there have been accidents in in the use of Pyrex. I know because I know firsthand because I had one. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I think it's consumers not reading the um, the directions accurately. Mm-hmm. And um, taking something from, you know, a freezer or the refrigerator and directly putting it directly, you know, on the stove or in the stove. But um, can you relate any stories about that? I don't know a lot about it because those those aren't things that we focus on as a <laughs> obviously not nonprofit <laughs> institution. But I know that World Kitchen. When I was researching this exhibition, there was a huge list of um, consumer. Um, consumer um, letters that were posted on the World Kitchen site, and they have a an FAQ about it. And I think, as you said, their conclusion was that it was due to not following the directions. Right. But I know that the the product itself, from what I've heard, is it is a tempered product, so it should be somewhat thermal shock resistant. So you mentioned the going from you know really hot to very cold. And um, the the Pyrex formula has changed over the years, so that was another bone of contention, I think, with consumers, because you start with a borosilicate glass, and then flameware is another kind of formulation, um, aluminous silicate, and then when you go to opalware, that's a completely different formulation of soda lime, hmm. which is the more common glass we have. And I'm not a scientist. I don't understand all <laughs> these differences, but I know that... Uh, um, there are very, three very different types of glass, and then within those, uh, you can see in some of the literature that Corning produced over the years that they created hundreds of different variations of those formulas. And then, of course, when it was sold to World Kitchen, I'm not sure um, at that point what formulas they're using, and they may have changed over the years as well. So it's a complicated issue. Well, certainly, if one follows the directions accidents don't happen and trust me as a and as a home user once you have one of those accidents you, you it'll never happen again <laughs> <laughs> um you know chili all over the kitchen um, <laughs> a little explosion there but um it's it is undeniably a fabulous product the pyrex bakeware and certainly an icon of american home kitchens and indeed changed so much of the way that we that we cook and and save food and serve food, and I think it's just um, and it should be an exciting exhibit to see. And of course, I know you can get, go into any vintage vintage ware cookware shop or um, you know, heavens probably even on eBay and see tons of of vintage Pyrex um, cookware, and it's just a lot of fun if you're fortunate enough to have some passed down from your grandparents, then uh, hold on to it because it will be valuable, I'm sure. And the, Corning, right. Right, and the Corning Museum of Glass is in upstate New York, in Corning, New York. And if, so if you're traveling up that way, it certainly sounds like a definite detour to take. And Reagan, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been um, very educational and, and just a, a wonderful topic to explore. Thank you, Linda. It was my pleasure. And thank you for listening to A Taste of the Past.
listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.